Amen. All right, the Gospel of John. A few uh, interesting things about the Gospel of John before we get into John chapter 20. Uh, is that John, the Gospel of John was written between 70 and 100 A.D. It was the last of the Gospels that were written. John uh, was a pretty prolific author. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote, wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, in this book, he doesn't identify himself other than the title, The Disciple Whom Jesus Loved. I love that identity. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, he knew who he was. Before he was an author, before he was a pastor, before he was anything else, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we, beloved, are the men and women, the children whom Jesus loves. It's a wonderful title. I love it. So he doesn't go out of his way to identify himself. He doesn't uh, see, seek a, a name for himself. He does seek to glorify and honor Jesus. And he does that over and over again in his writings. He was the son of Zebedee. He was an apostle, and according to Irenaeus and Eusebius, early church uh, leaders, uh, he was identified before his exile to Patmos, he was identified as a pastor in Ephesus. So the first book that we preached through with, uh, uh, as our church was the book of Ephesians, and John, we find out, was most likely an elder or pastor took to uh, the church at Ephesus. He writes in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to the church in Ephesus, and uh, we know that he had great care over the souls of the men and women that were there. Um, and so John was a prolific writer and uh, a pastor, and so he had a heart and concern for, for the believers, for the churches. We see that. It's evident in, in his letter. But not only that, not only does he have a concern for us, he has concerns for, concern for the non-believing world. Uh, he was an evangelist. Uh, he has deep, deep concern for people who are lost, who don't know Jesus. And he writes this letter to convince people of the truth of who Jesus is. He's kind of a curator of signs. So he takes some of the signs that Jesus did, and he puts them together, and he says, look, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so he's going to intentionally pick out a few things to write us a basically an evangelistic track. When you think about going out and witnessing, often uh, the thing that kind of rises to your surface, to the surface of your mind is going out and giving religious literature or going out to talk to people about Jesus comes with a gospel tract or, you know, Kale carries around a million dollar bill in his pocket uh, and he also gives tips, thankfully, but uh, the million dollar bill can go out and it's a gospel tract. It tells people about Jesus. John is an evangelist. He wants people to know the truth of who God is and what he's done in Christ. So this book is an evangelistic appeal. He writes to non-believers to convince them by the grace of God through the supernatural transformation of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But his letter is not simply evangelistic, it's also deeply theological. So as we go through this, we're going to find that not only are non-believers either convinced or repelled by the truth that he writes, Christians are edified. We are blown away by the truth of who Jesus is. We're going to spend some time with Jesus. That's what we want to do. We want to come and spend some time with the Lord. We want to walk with Him. We want to get our feet dusty from the dust that's coming up from His feet. We want to look at the passages of the, the Gospel of John. And we just want to get to know our Savior afresh and anew. We want to walk with Him. What's Jesus like? We're going to find out. You know, sometimes we uh, forget things that we've known in the past. I've talked about that a few weeks ago, how, how I can, can kind of be forgetful. Uh, we're going to remember afresh and anew. What is Jesus like? Who is He? What's He about? And we're going to get to know Him a little bit. D.A. Carson, summarizing the book of John, uh, says this, John's purpose is not academic. 
Although it is deeply theological, he's not writing to academic minds per se. He writes in order that men and women may believe certain propositional truth. So he's writing to lost people that they would believe certain things to be true. Propositional truth. The truth that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. He wants people to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the Jesus whose portrait is drawn in this Gospel. By such, faith is not an end in itself. What he says is that it is directed, faith is, to the goal of personal salvation. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's the purpose of this book today. And it is at the heart of Christian mission. So the point isn't simply to believe certain things to be true, but it's to experience. It's to have life in His name. It's experimental. John doesn't want you just to believe things, facts. He wants you to experience those things, those facts. It's experimental. We should know and believe the things that are true in this book. Uh, The book is really interesting because it's very neatly categorized. The first 12 chapters of the book, 1 through 12, deal with the first three years of Jesus' ministry. 1 through 12, first three years. Chapter 13 to 21 deal with the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week. So the first 12 chapters are going to be dealing with particular signs, specific signs, things that will convince the reader or repel the reader of who Jesus is. And then the last half of the book is about the last week of Jesus' life. So it breaks up really neatly and really cleanly for us. John doesn't, as stated before, simply want us to believe right things, but he wants us to experience a few things. Uh, We live in in an experience-filled world, experiencing all the wrong kind of things. And yet in Christianity, we can sometimes pendulum swing and wanting to avoid experiential Christianity, we move to a thinking Christianity. We want to be a thinking people. Paul tells Timothy, think over these things. Think over these things, for God will give you understanding in everything. Think. We are to be a thinking people, but we are not to only be a thinking people. The truth is intended to be experienced, transformative. So that's our hope when we get into this book, this letter, is that we experience the truth that we learn about. And John is not going to leave us in the dark. We're going to see it today. He's not going to leave us in the dark. What's the point of his book? Why do he write it? What is his intended goals? He's going to lay it out for us really cleanly and clearly. And that's why we start in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Look with me at these two verses. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. He lays it out really simple, really cleanly. Here's His point. I write to you these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, I love these verses. He starts in verse 30 by talking to us about signs. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples. As we get through chapter 1 through chapter 12, we're going to look at uh, miracles. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching. We're going to see some pretty amazing things. And John tells us that He did many, many things. At the end of chapter 21, He tells us that He did so many things, if He was to write everything that Jesus did... There are not enough books in the world to contain it. And so the Spirit led John to write specific things to get to his intended goal. 
There are many things that Jesus did that we don't know about. But these are written for a reason. When we think about signs, we have to realize that signs are not the point. Signs point us to the intended direction. So when I drive and we drive somewhere, we go uh, wherever it is that you may go, you, you follow signs. And signs are not the point. The destination is the point. If you went the whole way and you just looked at that sign and stopped and looked and you know, gawked at every sign along the way, uh, people would think you're, you're quite strange. You're quite weird because the point of signs is to point you where you're intended to go, not the point in and of themselves. Signs are not the point. They point to the point. Now, miracles, they point to the truth of the intended direction that he's going. Signs are pretty important. Miracles are pretty important. But here's the reality of this letter. You can believe that Jesus did some miracles. And you can be a person who stands in awe of these miracles. And you can look at them and believe them and think, oh my gosh, these miracles are awesome. And this is the point. This is the point. Look at all these miracles. And yet miss the message entirely. You can believe Jesus did some of these things, but that's not the point. The point is his life, death, and resurrection. The point is to be transformed. The point is to move from death to life. The point is to believe that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you make life in his name. And so if all you get is the 12 signs, you just believe in these first 12 chapters, I believe Jesus did this, Jesus did this, you miss the point. The signs point to reality beyond themselves. So fixation on the signs gets us Nowhere. Notice that these signs were done in the presence of the disciples. So these are not signs that were just, uh, um, Jesus said, hey, I did this. But they were observed. They were witnessed. Real people walking with Jesus. Real apostles who walked with them and saw these signs. Verse 31 says, but these are written. These signs are written. So an artistic curator takes art, puts it together, puts it on display, and then a curator of a museum gets it all ready, and then people will come and look at art. Some confused, some in awe. I remember going to a modern art museum in Dallas, and there was a piece of paper that was white and a piece of paper that was black put together on cardboard, and that was on display. And I was thinking, my goodness, I could do that. <laughs> Completely confused. But art, an, an artistic curator puts some things together for an intended purpose. John, and likewise, he's kind of like a curator of signs. He, he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the direction of the Holy Spirit, wants to write a letter convincing you who Jesus is and that you would have life in his name. So he has all this in front of him, all the signs that Jesus did, and the Spirit leads him to specific ones. This one, this one. Oh, no, yeah, you remember this one? I want you to include that. And then I want you to put this one in there as well. So these signs, these specific signs are written so that we would believe. And that's what John's doing. He's putting them together for us that we would believe. So first, first half, like I said, seven specific signs. Then the last, last half of the book contains the biggest sign, Jesus' death and resurrection. And so the point is clearly laid out for us. But why then, more specifically with these signs, did he write it? Well, one, we already read that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, and two, by believing that you may have life in his name. So one, 
John's point in writing the letter is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John has a pastoral heart, but John has evangelistic zeal. He longs for people to know Jesus. He doesn't want to just hit the streets. He doesn't want to just talk to his neighbors. He wants to put pen to paper. And he wants to appeal to anyone and everyone who would listen that maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit would awaken the hearers to the truth of who Jesus is. This is his big gospel tract. He wants people to know Jesus. The question I think that would be appropriate to ask for us We've talked about this quite, as, quite, quite, quite recently as well. Is, do you have zeal for the lost to know Jesus? And if you don't, I think this letter may kind of fan that into flame a little bit. As we see John the Evangelist passionate about people knowing this Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, we will grow passionate about lost people knowing Jesus. Maybe along the way there's somebody that you know, maybe a coworker, or a friend or somebody at school you go to school with, and you want to just say, hey, we're going through the Gospel of John in our church, and whether you attend or not, that's, it doesn't really matter, but I would love for you to, to just consider the claims of Jesus in the book of John. John, the guy who wrote this book, wrote it, uh, and maybe you can come face to face with the claims of Christ and either accept it or reject it. But don't just be in the middle. Don't just stand in the middle and just do one or the other. Just pick one. Because the words of Jesus make you come to a decision point. You either are going to have to accept it or you're going to have to reject it. So would you consider these claims? Maybe you have somebody you know that you want to take, this, take, along, take along with you through the book of John. Do you have evangelistic zeal? Do I have evangelistic zeal? And although this book is deeply theological, it is or deeply evangelistic, it is also theological, okay? So here's the interesting thing about this book. Uh, this book is really, really simple, and it's really, really profound. So John doesn't just assume that people who don't know Jesus, he doesn't assume that they're mentally uh, incapable. He assumes that even non-believers are going to use their mind, that they're going to think he doesn't approach them as if they're complete, uh, completely ignorant. He speaks to them in a way that's going to re- require them to think. So the bottom shelf and the top shelf are kind of the same for John. He makes it understandable, but he also is going to give them things that they are not going to understand at first. And he tries to explain those things. It's an important thing. So uh, the letter is for non-Christians that they would believe, but it's also for Christians, look in verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, so continuing to believe, you may have life in His name. John wants non-believers to believe, and he wants for all of us to have life, so the believer, life in Jesus' name. Now this is experiential living. True life. Life is not found outside of Christ. There is a world of people out there, okay, people are living, and it really is like Walking Dead, okay, some, some of you may be appalled by that show, I don't know, I liked it until like season four and it got really boring, but, uh, but I tell you what, people are walking around dead and they don't know it. 
And then there are believers who have some mentally, some, some right things. They're not mental, but they believe some things. They have mental assent. They are born again. They, they believe, but they don't necessarily have life as John is speaking about it or speaking to it. It's a joyless sort of Christianity that walks around saved, converted, but not experiencing life. And John would have for us life. Are you happy? Are you happy? It's not a wrong thing to ask. I'm not talking about right now, are you experiencing pleasure? Okay? Are you a happy person? Are you a joyful person? Okay, John would say, I want you to have life in his name. And by believing in Jesus, you can have life here and now. Not just life forevermore. Yes, life forevermore. But right now, you can be the type of person who enjoys things that non-believers can't enjoy because they're too much in a hurry. You can enjoy your family rightly. You can enjoy the things of God rightly. You can be the kind of person, by the grace of God, who doesn't have to have more who isn't always living this life as if you're not satisfied, longing for this or for that. By God's grace, you can have life in His name. Experimental Christianity. In Jesus, there is life by believing in Him. Okay, but there's an interesting thing in the Gospel of John. Belief. John uses the Greek word for belief a hundred times, over a hundred times in this Gospel. Belief is a big deal. So as we go through each chapter, we get to John chapter 3. Andy will be preaching John chapter 3. The first part about uh, being born again uh, by the Spirit. Belief is a big deal. John 3, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, belief. talks about belief over and over and over again. And it would be important for us, if we're to have life by believing in Jesus, his intended goal is that people would believe in Jesus and that by believing, we would have life in his name, that it needs to be, I think, a priority for us to understand what it means to believe in Jesus. He writes a ton about it. Belief. Believe in Jesus. What does that mean? Because in this gospel, he does an interesting thing. John is going to give us uh, examples of belief uh, that are less than true. So he's going to call some things belief or faith and then show us that it isn't real and true belief and faith. It's just false. It looks like it, but it's not the real deal. And he's going to define for us what real belief is. And if this whole letter is about believing in Jesus, then from the get-go, I think we can uh, kind of do a biblical survey and kind of dance through a couple texts, through a couple biblical passages in this letter and kind of define faith. We want to have true belief, not false belief. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want the world to be deceived. We want to know what true faith is and call people to true faith. We don't want to call people to a false faith. that just says, hey, believe this, pray the prayer, and you're in. You're good to go. Okay? We want them to know what real faith is, and we need to know what real faith is. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few examples. We're going to start in John chapter 2. We're going to look at an example of false faith. By believing, you may have life in His name. By, by believing, you may have life in His name. What is belief? John 2. And we're going to go to John 8. We're looking at two examples of false faith. And then we're going to kind of put that in opposition to true faith that we find in this book. 
And I'm telling you, it, it really is fascinating. It really is. It's not, it's not contrived. It's really there. John's going to help us understand what belief is. And if it's whole, it's whole point, like here's the whole point of the book, then we need to know what he means. So John chapter 2. I want you to go ahead and turn there with me. It's at the very end of John chapter 2. And there's a quite frightening passage. Like I said, two examples of false faith. John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Sword drill. Who's there? All right. Vicki Moore won. Starting in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Okay. Isn't that the point? Isn't that the point? To believe in his name. This is the whole point of the letter, John says. And in fact, they believed because they saw the signs that he was doing. You see that? They believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. It seems as if we should put a period there. There is a period there. But then we should stop and we should celebrate and say, yes, that's the whole point. Praise God. Revival. They believed in Jesus. Yes. But it goes on. It says something quite interesting. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Many believed. I mean, you see it there in black and white. Many believed in Jesus when they saw the signs that He were doing. That's what we want. We want people to see the signs in this letter and believe in Jesus. But not like this. We want real faith. This is an example of natural faith or human-driven faith, or we could say it more precisely, false faith. Jesus did not entrust Himself to them because He knew what was in their heart. This was not saving faith. It was some sort of mental assent. It was some sort of faith or some sort of belief in Jesus, but it was not saving faith. It was a false faith. Turn to John chapter 8, for example, number 2 of false faith. John chapter 8, again, is another intriguing passage. Jesus picks a fight. And this is going to be a fun one to preach here in a little while. Jesus picks a fight with a group of people who believed in Him. John chapter 8. I want you to first look at verse 31, and then we'll flip over to verse 42. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had what? In verse 31. You can say it out loud if you see it. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him. Who had believed Him? So this is the conversation. Jesus and a group of people who are saying, yeah, we believe in you. We, we believe in you, Jesus. Okay, go to verse 42. The dialogue continues. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do, you not, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father, the devil. And your will is to do your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in Him. When He lies... 
He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So Jesus looks to a group of people who believe in him and he picks a fight with them. And he says, no, you actually don't believe in me. You're you're sons of the devil. Now, how does that conversation go today in theological dialogue? (laughs) You're You're not just wrong. You are a son or a daughter of the devil. Okay? But this is Jesus. This is our Jesus. He's the only one that we have. And he looks to a group of people who believe in him and say, no, you don't. You're sons of the devil. You don't believe in me. We have another example of false faith. And in the end, here's what happens. They pick up stones to kill him. Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself hid and went out of the temple. They believed in him, but it wasn't real belief. So, okay, here's the the big obvious thing here. Uh, We don't want to believe like that, right? We don't want to fall into the trap. Believing like these Jews or believing like these false converts here. Believing like those in John chapter 2. We want real belief. We, we want real belief. We don't want Jesus to look at us and say, nope, you're sons and daughters of the devil. Real, true belief. And not only that, we want for the world, we want to invite them into a true faith. A saving faith. A supernatural faith. Something that cannot be contrived. Something that they can't get themselves. Something even beyond themselves. So we get to two examples of that false faith, but now we get some examples of true faith. Like this is the bullseye here. This is what we want. And if you're in Christ, this is what you've experienced. And it may feel a little uncomfortable. Jesus clearly is okay with saying some uncomfortable things, right? Like there's times that he's not PC. In fact, he's almost the opposite of that. Like, Like I said, he's the only Jesus we have. But he tells them they're the sons of the devil. And Jesus... As amazing as he is, says some incredible things, but we want to call people to this true faith, this real faith that John talks about, real faith in Jesus. So we get some examples of true faith in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Go ahead and turn there. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. This is what we want to call people to. This is what you've experienced if you are in Christ. And I want you to think, 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 think. Remember, as the Holy Spirit leads, we're required to put our thinking caps on and trust that the Lord is going to give help as we read and study these simple yet profound things. Look at verse 12 and 13. Here's what it says. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name. So there it is again. Believed in His name. Believed, believed, believed. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, this is interesting, is it not? What about those in John 2 and John chapter 8 who believed? Why didn't they get the right to become children of God? Well, it was because it wasn't real faith. It wasn't true faith. Here, we get a description of real faith. True faith. True belief. And what is it? Well, it's supernatural. It's not from within ourselves. It's not something that we have in our back pocket that we can carry around and say, here's my faith. I'm going to place it wherever I want. 
True faith is a gift from the Lord. It says it right here. Those who have believed in his name, he's become, given the right to become children of God who were born. How were they born? John the evangelist, tell us, not of blood, so not born into this thing. It's not because your parents loved Jesus, your grandparents loved Jesus, your great-great-grandpa was an evangelist, and your great-great-grandpa before that. Pastor, you can't be born into this thing, nor of the will of flesh. You can't get into this thing because it's what you desire. It's up to you. You can't do this, nor of the will of man. You can't get into this thing because other people want you into this thing, want you to believe in Jesus. How, how do we have faith? How, how do we have life in his name? How are we born of God? It says this, you were born but of God. God has done something. In John 3, when, when Andy preaches, you've got to be born of the water and of the Spirit. Okay, let me ask you this. Did anybody in here talk to your parents and ask them uh, anything before you were born? Kind of like deliberate with them whether or not you wanted to be born? No. Did you have anything to do with your conception? No. Nothing. Yet you were born physically. You're here. You're breathing. If you're a believer, it's because you've been born of God. And in the same way that the baby coming out of the womb and you slap the, the butt, and I tell my son sometimes the first thing he loves to hear in the story, he peed on the doctors and, nurse, and nurses, you know, and, and you hear that baby scream, this, and the baby starts screaming and crying, and you know, okay, that baby's alive. Well, for the believer, when you repent and believe, it's evidence that you are conceived by God. It's, it's like the wake-up cry. It's when you have repentance and faith, when you realize can't get to God on your own when you have no longer trusting in yourself and what you can do and when your belief and faith and all your trust by the grace of God is in Jesus that is the proverbial cry you have been born of God true faith to get into this thing is supernatural you can't do it only God can religions of the world like to elevate men and women and downplay God and the basic message of the world about religion is this. You can do it. God is passive in letting you make your decisions. But you can do this, and it's up to you. God really can't. He's chosen to sit on His hands and let you guys figure this all out. That's global religion. Welcome to Global Religion 101. Christianity has the market on the message that says, you can't do this. And the message we offer to the world isn't, hey, you can do this or become like me. Hank said last week, are you in this thing because I did this or I did that? No. The message that we offer to the world is there's hope in God and God alone. Only He can save. And we call them to repent of trusting in themselves and call them to lay before the Lord and just say, God, I just save me. I can't do this. And if you're in this thing, it's because God has given you supernatural faith. It's otherworldly. It's not something you had in your back pocket. It's something that God deposited in you. He gave it to you, and He made you come alive. And in the same way you didn't have anything to do with you being conceived on this earth, it's the same. You're a Christian because of God and God alone. It was His idea. So, born of God by believing in Jesus is to have supernatural faith. It's to turn away from ourselves and to continually trust in God to do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. To continue to believe is to continue to walk the supernatural life that says, I'm limited, God is unlimited.
I, I look at this and I don't see how any, anything could happen here. I don't see how, how Carbondale could be transformed. I don't see how my neighbors could come to Jesus. I don't see how my parents would ever turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus. I don't see how my neighbor, whoever, but God can do something. And we walk around as supernatural people, trusting in a supernatural God. Believing that God can do things that we cannot do. True faith is God-given faith, supernatural faith. And if you're a Christian, it's because you have been supernaturally born again. Now, John chapter 6 gives commentary for us on on both of these ideas, true faith and false faith. And we're going to get an example again of true faith in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 60. Start in verse 60. Jesus had been saying some hard things in John chapter 6. Jesus had been saying about the Old Testament when the manna came down from heaven and fed the people of God in the wilderness. Jesus said, oh yeah, I'm I'm the true bread. I'm the true manna. That was me. Uh, Saying things like, you got to take of my body and eat and you got to drink my blood. Saying some things that were quite confusing in John 6.44. He said something wildly offensive when he said to them, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If you want to offend somebody, tell them they can't do something. And Jesus said to them, no one, I don't care if you're a Jew, I don't care if you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And they didn't like that very much. They didn't like that very much at all. Jesus was speaking to them about their inability you want to see people squirm to this day? You tell them they're in bondage and they're not free. You want to see many believers get upset or feathers ruffled a little bit? Tell them that they're not free. Or tell them that they weren't free. To be human means to be like pre-Christ. You weren't free. You're in bondage. And this world is not free. Nor is their will. They're bound. They are sinners. They need to be set free. Well, they didn't like this message, believe it or not, in John chapter 6. Let's start in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this too? Then what if... You are to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who, those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Okay, he turned to his disciples. Now, there's the broader crowd, and then there's the disciples, okay? So this group of disciples are those who had believed in him and had been walking with him. And say, these are some hard things, Jesus. These are hard things for me to listen to. They're hard things for my ears to hear and my heart to handle. People don't like hearing about bondage. They don't like hearing about their limitations. The basic idea and sadly even in some Christian circles, is God knows your potential, and that's a good thing. 
People think human potential is somehow noble or somehow good, but human potential is not noble and good. Human potential is really, really bad. Do you know your potential? Not for the good. Do you know your potential to the bad? Do you know, if it wasn't for the grace of God, where you would be? They didn't like hearing this. It was quite upsetting to his disciples. In verse 65, it's fascinating. He turns to those who are grumbling. Now, remember, this isn't the broader crowd. This is the, now the disciples. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And here's the truth about the Gospel of John and true faith. This message that's all throughout John is not liked. It is not liked. The general consensus of broader evangelicalism is that, that, hey, humans can do this. And if they'll figure it out, if they'll put their mind to it, they can, they can get this. I'm not, talking away about, I'm not talking about stripping human responsibility. But this message is not liked to this day. And disciples to this day have struggled. It's not just these disciples. It's, it's disciples of Christ to this day who have heard things like this and have struggled with it. That if you've come to the Father, if you've come to Jesus, if you've believed in Him, it's because the Father, God, granted you that right. It was granted to you. It was given to you by God the Father. Well, there's grumbling disciples. There's disciples, okay? There's the broader world. There's the broader group that was listening to him, didn't like this at all. And then now there's these disciples. And now there's a rift with the disciples. Because there's some disciples here that are looking at Jesus and thinking, that's, I, that's too hard. I don't like that. And then there's the 12 who are walking with him. And the disciples, the broader disciples, besides the 12, begin to do something. They hear Jesus. And, and look at this really sad verse. Look at this really sad verse. Verse, in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I love Jesus, and we're going to see it over and over again in this book. He just tells you the truth. And here's our responsibility as believers is to submit to Jesus. And we're going to come face to face with some things in this book where it's like, okay, both the non-believer and the believer as well. And it's like, okay, here's our option. We either agree with Jesus or it's like, we hear the things that he says and we're not, don't ignore them, accept them or reject them. But here's the thing for believers. If we're his disciples, it's like, we just, we just accept it. It's like, okay, okay, yes, we'll walk with you. But there's going to be some things that Jesus says and people are repulsed by it and they just walk away. But then he turns to the 12 in verse 67. Jesus said to the 12, and I can almost hear, and I don't want to put enunciation or put tones in his voice, but it's almost like, so don't take this as, this is how he said it. But I almost feel like Jesus, <laughs> sorry, I told Ransom to do something about my sermon and he just, I, can't, I told him I wouldn't say it. But anyways, he's doing, he's letting me know how I'm doing in the sermon. Um, hey guys, do you want to go with them? Or are you going to stay? Are you with me? Can you handle what I have to say to you? Are you with me? Or are you going to walk away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the word of eternal life. And we have believed. We've believed. We've believed. And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To, to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian, means that we have a Master and we have a Lord. Jesus Christ is our leader. He is our Lord. He is our faithful big brother. And we submit to Him. We believe Him. What He says goes. We follow Him. We are no longer in charge of our lives. We are God's. He is our Father. We submit to Him. What He says goes. And I can imagine us as a church here. And I, it's like me as well. And here's what I want from us. We hear Jesus say that. Do you guys want to go away as well? And it's like we as a church. It's like, nope, Jesus, we're yours. Like, we're yours. You have us. We've come to believe. We know you're the Holy One of God. We're yours. We're going to walk with you. We're going to follow you. Wherever you call, we're going to go. Wherever you leave, whatever you say to do. God, we, we want to have this evangelistic zeal. We want to call people to real faith, not false faith. We don't want to walk around not having life in your name. Jesus, we want to believe in you. And so there's an appeal that goes out. There's an appeal that goes out both to the non-Christian, there's implications for the non-Christian in the Gospel of John, and there's implications for the Christian. If, to the non-Christian. If the non-Christian will stick with us, if we invite them in and just say, hey, I, I just in, invite you to come, just to this, come, come, it's going to be 30 weeks or so, it's going to be a real short series, maybe 40 weeks, I don't know, but come for about 40 weeks and consider the claims of Christ. And you're going to come face to face with Jesus and His Word. And along the way, if there's a group of non-believers that join us, they're either going to say, I don't like that. I tried that. Don't like it. Walk away. Or they're going to believe. And that's the point. Not neutrality. That you would either understand the words of Christ and reject them, or believe in Him and have life in His name. Cling to Him. Trust Him. Ask God along the way, God, open my eyes to these claims. If this is true, help me understand the truth. But whatever you do for the non-believer who we invite in, or if you're here today, don't remain neutral, ambivalent, just eh. And for the Christian, by God's grace, we are invited to spend time in this letter. As we go through this book, we're going to get to spend time with Jesus. We do every week, but we're going to specifically, we're just going to reacquaint ourselves with Jesus. He is incredible. He really is an awesome guy. He is King Jesus, He's Lord, He's our big brother, He's our master. He is a cool, the coolest that you'll ever meet. He says some wild things and some wonderful things. And our invitation is to keep believing and to keep living life here and now. We're going to get to know Jesus maybe more than we ever have before. And I honestly think, I think it's going to be a fun ride. I really do. Let's pray. Your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Uh, this, okay, true faith, false faith. God, uh, we, we're coming to receive communion here in a minute, just declaring boldly that we have received real faith. We have been of just slap happy people just throwing their faith at whatever it may be. We have been recipients of a heart transplant. Taken out what is dead and old and put in something new and alive. And we look at you, Jesus, and we come to your word, God, and we toss our heart 
as a heart that just says, mold me, shape me. What you say goes. I love you. And that we would believe, that's our prayer, that we would believe and have life. And so even right now, God, I pray for those who have been dealing possibly even with either depression, whether it be just a season or whatever it may be, just sadness or difficulty. God, I pray as we sing that right now there would just be peace in this room and that you would maybe... Maybe somebody in here hasn't experienced joy or this happiness, real happiness and joy for a very long time, and they would experience that as they're singing. And for maybe some of us, we've been walking with Jesus, we've been walking with you for a long time, we feel like we're coasting. It just kind of feels like we're on that hamster wheel, just running and getting nowhere. And maybe just today, we just believe in you afresh and anew. And life begins to return, joy that you would bring revival to our hearts. Holy Spirit, we just trust that you're going to work. Help us as we sing to you. It's in Jesus' name. Let's worship. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing to the Savior who is crucified that we may live? God gave his only Son that we might live through him. When I survey the wondrous cross On which the Prince of Glory died 